Reflections on W. H. Auden's New Year Letter by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 Marianne Moore said of the New Year Letter that it is a diagnosis of the spiritual illness of our day and a landmark in literature. Now, you would think that after two weeks of introduction to this poem, we would uh, proceed forthwith to the poem itself and not have to endure another introduction. Uh, But I want to begin today with uh, uh, another introduction uh, because I think I want to touch again on the influences that uh, were being felt by Auden as he was writing the poem, the influences most primarily, at least in the first section of the poem, of Charles Williams and Soren Kierkegaard. Let's begin where Auden begins his New Year letter, with an epigraph from Montaigne. Montaigne writes, We are, I know not how, double in ourselves, so that what we believe we disbelieve, and cannot rid ourselves of what we condemn. Auden read that quotation in Charles Williams' Descent of the Dove, And the best exegesis on the passage comes from the context in which Williams used it. It begins with the Williams discussion of a Renaissance noble named Lorenzo Valla. Lorenzo Valla. Valla, a 19th century humanist and classical scholar, was the one who had researched the so-called gift of Constantine and proved it to be a forgery. He was not, as you can imagine, knighted as a defender of the faith for defending it in such a stunning way. He was accused of being merely a classical scholar and not a Christian after all. Asked to state his views on matters of doctrine, and this is where we turn ourselves over to Charles William. Asked to state his views on matters of doctrine, William says, quote, He answered that he believed all that Holy Church believed. He added, with the accuracy of a scholar, that she, the church, did not know, she too believed, and with her, he. In adding this addendum, he may have complicated his own cause before his inquiries, but in Charles Williams' words, he was, quote, nicely balancing belief and disbelief, qualifying each by the other, and allowing belief only its necessary right proportion of decisiveness. William's works are full of these sorts of marvelous, crafted insights. Vala's point was admittedly a subtle one, one about which William says that, quote, it is quite sound when a master uses it, cheapens as it becomes popular, and is unendurable when it is merely fashionable. Uh, the merely fashionable version of Vala's insight is what some people have called shopping mall Uh, Christianity or shopping mall religion. Uh, I'll just walk down the mall and take a little of this and a little of that and whatever suits me. So that's that's the fashionable version of uh, of Vala's insight. So, Williams goes on, to give an example of this, Williams says, Augustine's predestination was safe with him, comprehensible in Calvin, tiresome in the English Puritans, and quite horrible in the Scottish presbyteries. There is no way of saving these things, William says, 
even Francis of Assisi has produced unintentionally circles of hopeless bathos. <clears throat> well, the subtleties of, a, of, a, uh, of an insight like uh, Vallas lead to confusions. But it is quite sound, William says, it's quite sound when a master uses it. And the master that came along was Montaigne, born in 1533, as William says, quote, the son of a Roman Catholic father and a mother of Jewish blood and Protestant opinions. <laughs> now, if you're going to be born in the Western world, that is the absolutely perfect combination. The son of a Roman Catholic father and a mother of Jewish blood and Protestant opinions. What a great combination. That's how he began. He ended on his deathbed receiving communion. In between, he said things like this. We are, I know not how, double in ourselves, so that what we believe, we disbelieve, and cannot rid ourselves of what we condemn. Now here's how William sums up Montaigne's efforts in life. Quote, He recalled men to the recollection that they began with a hypothesis, that faith, the kind of faith that he beheld active around him, which had, it was estimated, killed 800,000 human beings and wrecked nine towns and 250 villages, that faith had first been a hypothesis and had been generally translated into the realms of certitude by anger and egotism, to which Williams at his very best concludes the history of Christendom itself would have been far happier could we all have remembered that rule of intelligence, Montaigne's. Not to believe a thing more strongly at the end of a bitter argument than at the beginning. Not to believe it with the energy of the opposition rather than with one's own. We might enter onto Auden's New Year's letter with one last springboard from William's discussion of Montaigne one that no doubt Auden read with the keenest of interest. William says, Montaigne was a gentleman and a man of letter. He was not a theologian or a saint, and to observe him is to run the danger of becoming, or of being accused of becoming, literary. But letters have always played a part in Christendom, and though letters are not and never can be religion, yet style has had an immense influence on religion. Now, one can only imagine what was, went through W.H. Auden's head when he read that passage uh, in William's text. We know how influential it was because he used the Montaigne uh, quotation from, that Charles Williams had made as his, uh, as his epigraph to the poem, and also because in the original English, excuse me, in the original American version of the poem, the title of the poem was The Double Man, which was Charles Williams' uh, uh, summation of what uh, Montaigne was driving at. Perhaps we might bring in Kierkegaard. I want to bring in Kierkegaard here in a second, but, uh, but uh, we could lay the groundwork for it right at this point uh, by uh, uh, thinking back on Charles Williams saying, we run the risk of being literary, but uh, the, the, the literary arts have their place as well. Uh, Kierkegaard, who, whom Auden was reading with keen interest at this time as well, has as the epigraph to one of his most 
famous essays, two edifying discourses, the following. I am a poet, but I was made for religion long before I became a poet. And again, one wonders what uh, Auden went through Auden's head as he was reading uh, things like that. Auden had already uh, launched on his poetic vocation, and that was, that was to be his vocation throughout his life. But in the late 30s, he began to discover another dimension of that vocation. It didn't become a religious vocation. His is a vocation of a literary vocation, not a religious one. But he began to feel uh, religious implications uh, in, in, his, in his work. And he had already begun, before this poem has begun, to make the necessary poetic adjustments to the larger scope of his work. Which adjustment is, in the first instance, uh, again to rely on a, a phrase from Charles William, uh, to reject the pseudo-romantic impulse. The pseudo-romantic impulse is to avoid the confrontation with what Montaigne had said uh, by simply dividing the world up into the sacred and the secular, or the world and the soul. Uh, history and religion, uh, so that one doesn't have to... You see, the, the, uh, the sordid episodes uh, in the Christian tradition, the sordid episodes of the religious uh, participation in secular life was so terrible and obviously a, a tragedy uh, that everyone involved was happy to reach some other compromise where, whereby we could keep these worlds separate. And a byproduct of that is we would never have to really come, come to a confrontation with Montaigne's uh, statement. We could just have religion become a cultic operation where on, living and breathing on the reservation provided by the empire uh, and uh, preoccupying itself with the, the rituals and the uh, rubrics and so on and so forth. Uh, history could proceed along largely Machiavellian lines and, uh, and, and, and many of the real tensions could be eliminated. And all of that flows from what Charles Williams calls a pseudo-romantic impulse. Uh, Charles Williams says Dante had a true romantic impulse, uh, but there are an awful lot of people who have the pseudo-romantic Im impulse. Uh, Williams says the true romantic impulse examines until it gets to the bottom of the thing, and the pseudo-romantic impulse swoons and lets it go at that. Speaking of the romantic impulse in its, in its uh, familiar context, that is to say romance, uh, Williams says in, uh, in his book on the figure of Beatrice, a commentary on Dante's Divine Comedy, he says, Admittedly, the Paradiso, being the high close of Romanticism, is not easy for beginners in Romanticism, but to spiritualize Beatrice away from earth into a pseudo-Romanticism is very like mortal sin. And then that same insight comes when uh, Auden looks at what happens to the church or to religion. When it uh, spiritualizes itself away from the earth, removes itself over to this little compound where it can be completely preoccupied with its cultic operations and not be touched by the, the tensions and demands of, of history. William says in The Descent of the Dove, the lost or pseudo-romantic in all times and places has the same marks 
and he had them at the excuse me, and he had them in the early centuries of the faith. He was then called a Gnostic. That is to say, someone who tolerates this division between the, the soul and the world, history and religion and so on. Well, that division had come about uh, as a response to the same kind of sordid history that Montaigne objected to. Uh, so that the, that the, uh, the, the faith could go over here and uh, enclose itself in the, in the, on the reservation and not have to deal with Montaigne's insistence that belief and disbelief uh, belong to each other. It could simply be the place of belief and ignore what's happening in the rest of the world. And public life could proceed without the bother of, uh, of the religionist. Under the pressure of contemporary events, and uh, certainly the events of the middle of the 20th century, that uh, old arrangement, that old accommodation, was breaking down. Uh, the, the worlds could not be separated like that anymore. The best rendition of that that I know of is from Martin Buber's I and Thou, a little passage in I and Thou, and I'll read it to you. Uh, he's using a metaphor here of, uh, of two walls with rows of pictures on them. And uh, here's his, it's a metaphor for the, for the new situation developing in the Western world. He says, on the one there is the universe, on one wall. The tiny earth plunges from the whirling stars, tiny man from the teeming earth, and now history bears him further through the ages to rebuild persistently the anthill of cultures which history crushes underfoot. Beneath the row of pictures is written, one and all. So that's the universe. On the other wall there takes place the soul. A spinner is spinning the orbits of all stars and the life of all creation and the history of the universe. Everything is woven on one thread and is no longer called stars in creation and universe, but sensations and imaginings or even experiences and conditions of the soul. Beneath the row of pictures is written, one and all. Thenceforth, if ever the man shudders at the alienation and the world strikes terror in his heart, he looks up to right or left, just as it may chance, and sees a picture. There he sees that the eye, capital I, the the eye. There he sees that the eye is embedded in the world and, to, and that there really is no eye at all. So the world can do nothing to the eye and he is put at ease. Or he sees that the world is embedded in the eye and that there really is no world at all. So the world can do nothing to the eye and he is put at ease. Another time, if the man shudders at the alienation and the eye strikes terror in his heart, he looks up and sees a picture, which picture he sees does not matter. The empty eye is stuffed full with the world or the stream of the world flows over it and he is put at ease. But a moment comes and it is near when the shuddering man looks up and sees both pictures in a flash together and a deeper shudder seizes him. So we have the double man in two senses here. I, I would suggest two senses. One is that belief and disbelief cannot be separated. And then one must work out the struggle. Life is a struggle in which both of those have a part to play. Dante, you know, has a marvelous image for doubt. Uh, I, 
wish I'd thought about it. I would quote it uh, directly from the Charity Translation. It's beautiful. Doubt is uh, like the tendril on a vine. Uh, it reaches up gropingly and finds the next uh, a secure foothold. And th- through that, the vine grows. Dante's wonderful insight. Without it, it will not grow. We need that disbelief, that doubt. And Montaigne was of the same opinion, and so, of course, is, uh, is uh, Auden. I came upon a little episode. Well, it's actually a little passage in a review of, uh, that uh, Auden wrote in The Nation, 1941. But it struck me as being, to some extent, an example of the kind of doubleness that, that Auden seems to be concerned with here. Reinhold Niebuhr had, one feels, felt the truth of Buber's statement, which is that we can no longer leave those two realms to themselves, that they are obliged to inform one another and uh, demand that each other uh, confront the facts presented by the other. And... Uh, Niebuhr's response to that was to write a book entitled Christianity and Power Politics. Not to put too fine a point on it, but finally that. And Auden reviewed the book for The Nation, 1941. And in his review, uh, he agreed with the theological accuracy of Niebuhr's attack on the pacifist movement because it tended to be premised on the Pelagian heresy. Pelagian heresy is that we're really okay after all, that, 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 that original sin is not really a problem. I mean, we're, we're, we, can, we can really just become better by good intentions and a little effort. Right? That's the Pelagian heresy. And Niebuhr had said the, the pacifist movement is, uh, is suffering from that heresy. Auden agreed with the theological accuracy of Niebuhr's insight, but then he criticized Niebuhr for not being sufficiently ashamed of his attack. (laughs) Now, it's just a little example of a person who realizes that all the deeper truths are paradoxical. And if one tries to speak a truth... Uh, it's very likely, if one's not completely and fully conscious of the paradoxes, one might speak a truth which, which uh, unintentionally but unavoidably puts another truth into eclipse. And, and once one is aware of that problem, the, 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 first, uh, the, the first thing one thinks about doing is falling completely silent. Uh, but, and here I have sympathy with Auden, one has to carry on with one's work, right? <laughs> and if one's work is words, there you have it. So how to see both pictures in a flash together and not merely ground oneself in the truth of this one and maybe even alternate, alternately the truth of that one, but to see these demands being made simultaneously and uh, to know that if one says a, a ringing truth, it's very possible that you have put another truth equally worthy into eclipse. 
Okay, well, that's the intellectual problem, I think, and the spiritual problem that Auden is aware of as he begins to write this poem. And the other problem, of course, is the problem of the 20th century, which is, which is um, weighing heavily on everybody and, and uh, quite heavily on Auden as he takes up the poem. It's called the New Year Letter, and I think it's a New Year Letter in three, uh, in three senses. And I want to use two uh, three-part uh, pictures of this poem this morning. And the first one is this. It's a New Year Letter in that, uh, though it is written uh, during 1940, it is dated January 1st, 1940. So the New Year is... 1940, as opposed to 1939. So it is reckoning with what happened in 1939 and the fact that 1939 is now over. 1939 is when World War II began. And we know Auden had written the poem September 1st, 1939 on the date that uh, German tanks rolled into Poland. So it's a big year. That's, so it's the end of that. A new year is now beginning. It's also the end of the 30s, which had been a disastrous decade by m many people's estimation and certainly by Auden's, and, and he, he, he speaks of it later on the poem. We'll talk about it later today. But also it is, for Auden, the end of an epoch that began with the Renaissance. An accommodation that began with the Renaissance is now over. And it is uh, now necessary to uh, proceed with the business of finding the next accommodation. One of the commentators on Auden, Herbert Greenberg, put it this way. We live, Auden believes, at the end of the Protestant era, or, as he has it here, the Renaissance. And the poem is his analysis of the factors bringing this era to disaster and of the situation we confront in readying ourselves to set out anew. Okay, so, uh, just to summarize here for a second. It begins with the recognition that we are double in two ways. Belief and disbelief must not set, be cut off from one another. They need one another. Doubt and faith need one another. And so we are obliged to be double creatures, as Montaigne had said. And secondly, we are double because we cannot uh, avoid the discomfort any longer by settling for some kind of Gnostic accommodation, which is the business of the soul, of religion, of the cult, etc., is over here. And the worldly business is over here. And never the twain shall meet. So that accommodation can't work anymore. So we find ourselves in the in in we find ourselves conflicted. We find ourselves responding to demands that seem to take us in two directions at once. And so we are double. And Auden says we must begin with that recognition of ourselves. Now the poem is a poem in search of order. Uh, you know, it's one thing to uh, to uh, as Nietzsche did uh, wax romantic about the Dionysian energies. But there weren't too many people at the end of the 1930s who were interested in waxing romantic about the Dionysian energies. By the end of the 1930s, uh, the, uh, another question had presented itself, the question of order and 
decorum and civilization. And uh, so this poem is a search for order, not a cheap order, not an imposed order, not an artificial one, not a nostalgic one, but one that really convenes the energies that are uh, at loose in the world. But in order to write a poem, you have to have an order uh, to work with. The poem is, I think, genuinely a search. But to begin the search, you have to, a poem is a structured piece of literature. You have to have a structure. And Auden got his structure from Kierkegaard, who was another profound influence on Auden uh, in the 30s and throughout his life. In the, in the early 50s, Auden uh, edited an, an anthology of Kierkegaard's writings. So he's profoundly influenced by Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard divides the world, uh, divides human experience into three categories, the aesthetic, the ethical, and the religious. And Kierkegaard uh, says, well, it's, it's possible with a certain amount of uh, repression going on, it's possible for somebody to live exclusively uh, in the aesthetic. Or perhaps they have moved beyond that into the ethical. It's, po- possibly, it's possible to, to ensconce oneself in the ethical uh, and never make it to the larger one. For, for Kierkegaard, they are concentric circles. One moves from the aesthetic to the ethical to the, to the religious. It's possible to get stuck in one of them. But the goal is to is to assimilate them all. For Kierkegaard, this sounds like a little philosophical discussion, but I I think it'll be helpful, and I think it'll also help us all the way through Auden's poetry, because Kierkegaard has left his imprint on everything Auden wrote, I think. So uh, Kierkegaard uh, regards the, the aesthetic as including intellectual and scientific activity. The aesthetic involves a movement between life options based on beauty or pleasure or comfort, or uh, in the scientific and intellectual realms on on elegance and eloquence. So one moves through life based on beauty, comfort, pleasure, uh, and, and those who so move are regarded and regard themselves sometimes as discriminating persons, persons with good taste, refined persons, and so on and so forth. Kierkegaard says that what passes for aesthetic choice is not a choice at all because it involves no genuine renunciation. One chooses uh, this piece of music because it's pleasing, and not because one is, it confronts one with an either-or choice. Kierkegaard says the ethical is what confronts one with an either-or choice. A person living his life based on the aesthetic, Kierkegaard says in Sickness Unto Death, lives in the sensuous categories agreeable, disagreeable, and says goodbye to truth. So Kierkegaard says someone who's living their life exclusively uh, based on aesthetic orientation is living in despair but often doesn't know it because uh, the despair has been walled off behind a series of reasonably pleasant episodes. 
It's what, uh, un, uh, what Kierkegaard calls unconscious despair. In his journals, Kierkegaard describes his own attempt to live the aesthetic life. He says, In the bottomless ocean of pleasure, I have sounded in vain for a spot to cast anchor. I have felt the almost irresistible power with which one pleasure drags another after it, the boredom, the torment which follow. Kierkegaard says, He who lives aesthetically does not choose. And he who, after the ethical has manifested itself to him, chooses the aesthetical, is not living aesthetically. He is sinning. Suddenly the ethical presents itself right there on the 6 o'clock news or right there in, at the dinner table or right there in the workplace. And then, what then? Well, if one confronts the ethical, one steps into, as Kierkegaard sees it, a, another region of life and begins to be challenged in a new way. But it's perfectly possible to get trapped there. Now, the best statement of being trapped there is not Kierkegaard's, but Buber's. Buber talks about the moral man. He says, the moral man is involved in duty and obligation to the world. He is wholly defined by the tension between being and ought to be. (laughs) And in grotesque and hopeless sacrificial courage, casts his heart piece by piece into the insatiable gulf that lies between them. It's possible to get stuck in that. But finally, it comes to this. Kierkegaard says, quote, If you cannot reach the point of seeing the aesthetical, the ethical, and the religious as three great allies, if you do not know how to conserve the unity of the diverse appearances which everything assumes in these diverse spheres, then life is devoid of meaning. So the purpose of of all of this, you see, is finally to reconcile them all. Not to abandon the aesthetic or the ethical in the progress, you see, but to bring them all into play. And then one discovers the real power of the aesthetic and the real power of the ethical and the real value of the religious in relationship to one another. It's an oversimplification, but it's mildly helpful to see the three parts of this poem as being influenced by those three realms. Part one, the aesthetic. Part two, the ethical. And part three, the religious. It, it doesn't fall out that easily because Auden is not that simple-minded. Uh, but... In terms of an emphasis, there is, I think, that kind of a pattern to the poem. Finally, the poem. Under the familiar weight of winter, conscience, and the state, in loose formations of good cheer, love, language, loneliness, and fear, towards the habits of next year, along the streets the people flow. So, Uh, The poet begins by looking out and seeing people going about their business on the streets. Familiar, in loose formations of good cheer. And now see, the poet will see the situation at its surface. 
but because he's the poet, he then proceeds inward from the surface. In loose formations of good cheer, love, language, loneliness, and fear. So from and the and the two rhyme words are interesting: good cheer and fear. So it's in other words, one looks out and sees the cultural life proceeding without too much change. It's familiar. It's like it's always been. Everybody's walking to work or to the store or whatever and milling about, and things don't seem to have changed. Good cheer, love language, loneliness, and fear. Towards the habits of next year, and I think that's probably the most significant line in that first little passage. Groping awkwardly, not even aware that we're groping, towards the habits of a new a new time. The new year. This new year letter is not about 1940. It's about a new, a new configuration, a new accommodation to the demands that are being made on us. Towards the habits of next year. Twelve months ago in Brussels, I heard the same wishful thinking sigh. As round me trembling on their beds or taut with apprehensive dreads, the sleepless guests of Europe lay wishing the centuries away. And the low mutter of their vows went echoing through her haunted house as on the verge of happening there crouched the presence of the thing. So he says, 12 months ago, now 12 months ago was, according to the official date of this poem, before the German invasion of Poland, before all the terrible things that happened in 1939. Uh, but they were in the air. And there was a lot of wishful thinking, sighing going on. The sleepless guest of Europe lay wishing the centuries away. And Auden is quick to point out that nothing in the conventional cultural repertoire was capable of dealing with. All formulas were tried to still the scratching on the windowsill. All bolts of custom made secure against the pressure on the door. But up the staircase of events carrying his special instruments to every bedside all the same, the dreadful figure swiftly came. So why is this poem being made necessary? Because of this catastrophe in the Western world, middle of the 20th century. And as the, as the force field of the, of the accommodation which began in the Renaissance weakens, a primitive force begins to take hold. Now, Auden has here next a long, huge long sentence with one subject. The subject is the sun and the, the sun in the heavens shining down. The same sun whose neutral eye had watched the earth behave and seen strange traffic on her brown and green, obedient to some hidden force, a ship abruptly change her course, a train make an unwanted stop, a little crowd smash up a shop, Suspended hatreds crystallize in visible hostility. It's a reference, I think, to Kristallnacht, the uh, the night when the, the German thugs went 
through and broke all the shop windows of the Jewish shopkeepers. A little crowd smash up a shop, suspended hatreds crystallize into visible hostility. Vague concentrations shrink to take the sharp, crude patterns generals make the very morning that the war took action on the Polish floor, the invasion of Poland. So that sun is looking down on that terrible thing, this, this, this gestalt of hatred and violence. What I have here in my notes is a, uh, is a quotation from the New York Times article from Monday, last Monday, January 15th. There's uh, a lot been reported since then, but uh, this captures, I think, the, the point that I want to make here. Witnesses said Azerbaijani mobs broke away from a huge rally in Baku on Saturday night and rampaged through the streets using mimeographed address lists to find the homes of Armenians and drive them outside. Now, if that isn't crystal knock, I don't know what is. Gangs committed, excuse me, gangs continued to roam the Armenian quarter today, committing what the official press agency Tos described as atrocities and pogroms. The terror in Baku, a city once touted by Moscow as a cosmopolitan model of inter-ethnic coexistence, reportedly began several days ago with Azerbaijani gangs going from house to house, throwing Armenians from their apartments and building bonfires of their possessions. Local police watched indifferently, a TASS correspondent reported. So the same son who looks down on this terrible tragedy in Europe in the 30s, and on this terrible tragedy in uh, Azerbaijan in our time, that same sun, quote, lit up America and on a cottage in Long Island shone, where Buxtehuda, as we played one of his pasacalias, made our minds a civitas of sound where nothing but a scent was found, for art had set in order sense and feeling and intelligence. Here is another moment where a community is being convened. On Long Island, listening to the Swedish composers Pasakalias, is even more of an irony here. Pasakalia means dancing in the street. So they were sitting, simply sitting there on Long Island listening to the Pasakalians and being brought into a civitas of sound where nothing but a scent was found. Well, in the, in the streets of Munich and in the streets of Baku, you can also be assured that nothing but a scent was found. It's a different kind of a scent. But that's the point of the poem. Now what happened on Long Island? Art, that is the aesthetic. Art had set in order sense and feeling and intelligence. Now, Auden is an artist And he's picturing what art can do. And we would be idiots not to want to participate in that. But the point Auden is making without having to make it 
is made by the juxtaposition of these two scenes. Nobody is naive enough to believe that Buxtehudus Pasakalias could bring order to Europe in 1939. And that's the point Auden is making. He's affirming the artistic uh, gift to the world and recognizing in juxtaposition to this other one its impotence. Anthony Hecht in his poem Feast of Stephen has something that touches on the same issue. He says, Think of the storm Abtilong's commandant, the commander of the stormtroopers. Think of the storm Abtilong's commandant who loves Beethoven and collects Degas. The impotence of the aesthetic to deal with the ethical. So Auden says, Art is not life and cannot be a midwife to society. It can't inform us. It's an artifact. And as an artifact, it serves, he says, to typify. An abstract model of events derived from past experiments, and each life must itself decide to what and how it be applied. What the artist has done is left a an artifact that in by encountering come to know something about ourselves. Auden speaking to the artist says, Now large, magnificent and calm, your changeless presences disarm the sullen generations, still the fright and fidget of the will, and to the growing and the weak your final transformation transformations speak, saying to dreaming, I am deed. To striving, courage I succeed. To mourning, I remain, forgive. And to becoming, I am, live. Auden then says, uh, before this thing can get underway, an artist must have a summary tribunal before uh, the great masters of the past. But the rule is you get to pick whoever you want. Uh, so Auden, uh, acknowledging his own incapacity, says... Whoever rose to read aloud before that quiet, attentive crowd and did not falter as he read, stammer, sit down and hang his head. He knows himself to be one of those. But he assembles the three judges. And I think if we want to understand what Auden wants to do, we can look at who he, who he picks as his three main judges. The first is Dante, the obvious and best choice, of whom he says, that hard-bitten pioneer who spoiled a temporal career and to the supernatural brought his passion, senses, will, and thought by amor rationalis led through the three kingdoms of the dead to find at last a juster nucleus than Rome. The three realms of the dead, for Dante, of course, hell, purgatory, and paradise, but I think the three realms that Auden is going to spend most of the rest of his career negotiating are the realms of the aesthetic, the ethical, and the religious, and reconciling them. And then he picks self-educated William Blake, who broke off with a curse with the Newtonian universe, but even as a child would pet the tigers Voltaire, Voltaire never met. Voltaire's the Enlightenment uh, poet and 
philosopher, you see. And uh, so he picks Blake because Blake broke off with the cultural paradigm. And finally he picks uh, Rimbaud and says of him that he was, that he had, uh, that he was skillful, intolerant, and quick, who strangled an old rhetoric. So someone who uh, can cut through the existing uh, familiar cliches and aphorisms. So now we come to the heart of the matter, the, the uh, major metaphor in the first part of the poem. The situation of our time surrounds us like a baffling crime. There lies the body half undressed we all had reason to detest. And all are subjects and involved until the mystery is solved and under lock and key the cause that makes a nonsense of our laws. So the metaphor is a, is a mystery. There is the dead body, which at one level is the body of Western culture. At another level is just literally the body of the victim. We all had reason to detest. In other words, all of the, all of the violence has its reasons, its rationales, its slogans, its legitimizing uh, alibis, and so on and so forth. There is always a reason. But nevertheless, there's the victim. And the victims now are numbering in the millions and we have to solve this crime. And the question is, who did it? Why did the watchdog never bark? Why did the footsteps leave no mark? Where were the servants at that hour? How did a snake get in the tower? Now, why did the watchdog never bark? There's a question for you. Here's how Anthony Hecht addresses that same question in a poem called Rites and Ceremonies. For years the screaming continued, night and day, and the little children were suffered to come along too. At night, Father, in the dark when I pray, I am there, I am there, I am pushed through with the others to the strange room without windows, whitewashed walls, cement floor. Millions, Father, millions have come to this pass which a great church has voted to, quote, deplore. See? Why did the watchdog never bark? Auden wrote a poem entitled Dia Diaspora 1940 in which, if I understand the poem correctly, he sees the victims, and specifically the Jews, but the victim in whatever circumstance, as the Christ in the modern world. And so here's how Auden puts it in this sonnet entitled Diaspora 1940. He changes uh, the victim to the singular because the victim, whoever the victim is, is Christ. 
How he survived them, they could never understand. Had they not beggared him themselves to prove they could not live without their dogmas and their land, no worlds they drove him from were ever big enough. That is a hell of a lie. No worlds they ever drove him from were ever big enough. And he, now he is the victim who is always Christ, he fulfilled the role for which he was designed. On heat with fear, he drew their terrors to him and was a godsend to the lowest of mankind. And I think that, that line has two distinct meanings. He was a godsend to the lowest of mankind, meaning he gave the persecutors an, a, an opportunity to, to gather themselves together and have a cause. But he was also a godsend to the lowest of mankind because he drained away the violence from the other potential victims. Till there was no place left where they could still pursue him, except that exile which he called his race. Jesus is a Jew. I think it's very important to begin to say that in the present tense and not in the past tense. Not to say Jesus was a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. Particularly when, when, when a Jew is used in the pejorative. The response ought to immediately be, Jesus is a Jew. Till there was no place left where they could still pursue him except that exile which he called his race. But envying him even that, they plunged right through him into a land of mirrors without time or space and all they had to strike now was the human face. Well, it's another one of those imponderable poems of Auden's, I think. But it's evidence of the fact that Auden saw the victims as the representatives of Christ in the situation. And in the New Year letter poem, he said, there's the body. We all had reason to do what we did that resulted in the victimization. But we have to find out what caused that. Meanwhile, our equipment all the time extends the area of the crime till the guilt is everywhere. Our technology is, is carrying the crime out into the, all over the world until we face the question, what we're doing, what we're really doing. Auden speaks about what we called the scandalizing when we were dealing with some New Testament text. To scandalize is to, is to push someone's buttons and cause them to get caught up in the melodrama in some way that uh, it, it finally becomes uh, violent and vicious. So Auden says, who, thinking of the last ten years... Now we're talking about the decade of the 30s. And he, and he provides a little litany of how bad it was. Does not hear howling in his ears the Asiatic cry of pain, Japanese invasion of Manchuria. 
shots of executing Spain, the Spanish uh, Civil War. See, stumbling through his outraged mind, the Abyssinian blistered blind, Mussolini's mustard gas in Ethiopia. The dazed, uncomprehending stare of the Danubian despair, the Jew wrecked in a German cell, flat Poland frozen into hell. Terrible catastrophe in Europe. The silent dumps of unemployed whose arete has been destroyed. Arete, the Greek word for, for their, their, their energy and commitment and courage and life. So he says, who thinking of the last ten years will not feel blind anger draw his thoughts towards the Minotaur to take an early boat for Crete and rolling silly at its feet add his small tidbit to the rest. It lures us all. You know the story of sending the, uh, the Greek uh, uh, young people to uh, to, to, the, to the labyrinth where they would be eaten by the Minotaur. So we get scandalized when we realize the, the, the scope of the disaster. We're scandalized and we want to jump on the first boat to Crete to go over and uh, kill the Minotaur. And Auden is talking here, I think, about the enthusiasm with which troops were jumping on boats for the first half of the 20th century. That's the solution. Get on the boat, get on over there, and get rid of this monster. And rolling silly at its feet, add his small tidbit to the rest. A tidbit is a, is a morsel. So the Minotaur is perfectly capable of taking a few more people in. Until at last, he says, we are tempted to surrender to the grand apocalyptic dream in which the persecutors scream. As on the evil Aryan lives descends the night of the long knives, the bleeding tyrant drags through all the ashes of his capital. That's what we want. Find the culprit and break him and destroy him as happened, of course, in Romania, for example, recently. So really a terrible litany of the disasters and of the apparent options. What do you do? And then at the end of section one, he returns to the question of the aesthetic. He had already documented both, both uh, directly and by inference the impotence of the aesthetic to deal with the scope of the disaster. But towards the end of section one, he says, though language may be useless for no words men write can stop the war or measure up to the relief of its immeasurable grief, yet truth, like love and sleep, resents approaches that are too intense. And often when the searcher stood before the oracle, it would ignore his grown-up earnestness, but not the child of his distress. For through the Jonas of a joke, the candid psychopompus spoke. 
Now, this is interesting. Uh, for Auden, one of the salient features of the ideologies that were at the heart of, the, of, of all the violence was that they were grim and sullen and humorless. And that a well-placed chuckle, if not a belly laugh, would probably do more than a hotly worded denunciation in undermining. For through the Janus of a joke, the candid psychopompus spoke. The god Janus is the god of beginnings and endings. Uh, January is named after Janus, and this poem is dated as January 1st. So we're talking about the, the god of endings and beginnings. And what's ending is 1939, the 1930s, and the epic that began with the Renaissance. Edward Callan, who wrote a commentary on Auden's poetry, says Auden's poetry is like James Joyce's puns both trivial and quadrivial. <laughs> quadrivial refers, it has a couple references, but here it refers to the fourfold sense, the, the Dantean. Dante says, I wrote a poem, you, it has, has meaning on four levels, take your pick. John of the Cross is the ultimate proponent of uh, the, uh, the negative way, the way of renunciation. Uh, Dante is the ultimate proponent of the way of affirmation. In Charles Williams' treatment of John of the Cross, even he, towards the end, was encouraged to remember that he liked asparagus. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is somewhat helpful for our discussion today because it brings back the question of the aesthetic. 